0: DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As always, I'm glad to have you with us today. Let's get right to our panel because we have a lot to talk about. It's Tuesday, which means that uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's senior reporter, Tamar Hallerman, is my partner on the show today. Tamar, how are things going?
2: Great. Excited to be here.
1: Yeah, we're always glad that you're here. Um, we, you did a major takeout, a major piece, on the 1996 Olympics in the Sunday paper and the heritage, the legacy that they left uh, for us, both good and bad. And I want to talk with you a little bit about that later in the show. So uh, we will get to that at uh, some point. We're also uh, glad to have uh, with us Mariella Romero, the Comput- Community Empowerment Director for Univision. And uh, as I always like to say, the winner of far more Emmy Awards for her work on television than I could ever hope to have. How are you, Mariella?
3: Good morning. How are you? Very glad to be here with you.
1: Glad to have you, and one of the reasons it's particularly good to have you here is we're going to talk about uh, stories that really speak uh, to your constituency in a big way, some issues that uh, Joe Biden is facing, criticism he's facing for the way he's been handling the border, and a story the AJC reported this week on um, how hard it is to find representation, legal representatives, if you are facing deportation here in the state of Georgia— we will get to that and more a little bit later. Uh, Representative Terry Anulowitz, Smyrna, Democrat from Smyrna, is here. She's already been out walking her dogs uh, this morning. How, what, what, well, tell us about your dogs, Terry.
4: Oh, we have two wonderful dogs. We have a nine-year-old. These are specific bird dog breeds that my husband has found. We have a wire herd pointing Griffon. She is nine. It's like the eight people out there listening. They're like, yeah. I heard And then we have a puppy, we have a seven-month-old Boykin Spaniel, and I've learned that if they get a long walk in the mornings, I can be much more productive the rest of the day.
1: <laughs> well, that's good. We're glad you're ready to, uh, to give us uh, your best thinking about the issues we're going to discuss on Political Rewind today. Uh, and Julianne Thompson, uh, Republican strategist, longtime activist in Republican Party politics here in the state of Georgia. Who has just moved? Who? How quickly did you sell your house, Julianne?
0: I sold my house in two days. Sold it in <laughs> two days <laughs> and closed ten days later. So it's it's been a very chaotic two weeks. Um, but it's very good to be here, and I appreciate you having me. Thank you.
1: Oh sure. Well, and the reason you know, I I wouldn't, I might not have asked you that question um, because that's your personal business. But it really does speak to what we're already aware of, and that is the housing market is on fire, uh, certainly in metro Atlanta as well as major cities across the country. And what happened with you is a perfect example of that.
0: It is. It absolutely is. And I think that the beginning of the summer in May, it was just this, they're calling it magical May because things would be on the market less than 24 hours and people would be coming in with offers over the asking price. And then June and into July, it was still very strong. But as I think we get into the fall and people are, kids are going back to school, I think things are slowing down just a little bit. It's still going to be a good market for sellers, but things are slowing down a little bit. And I'm, I'm happy that I sold when I did.
1: Well, uh, congratulations on that. Um, Tamar, let's talk politics. We've been spending an awful lot of time, for good reason, talking about uh, COVID and the surge here in Georgia. Uh, for the last few days. I'd love to start with politics today, especially because we have a brand new poll from PPP, Public Policy Polling, which is an acknowledged um, sort of left-leaning polling agency, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention to their data. And of course, the headline, I think, from the poll is that Herschel Walker, who may or may not actually be on the verge of announcing he's running for the Senate in Georgia, uh, comes out with the highest favorability rating of any candidate, and that's among both both Democrats and Republicans. Um, And uh, something like three-quarters of Republicans have a favorable view of him, according to the poll. And even in the larger poll uh, pool of Democrats and Republicans— His favorability ratings are at 41%. His unfavorables are at 28%. So it's astonishing, but also not surprising that a football hero would be performing so well at this stage. He's not in the race yet
2: sure um, but but that those have to be numbers that that scare people like Latham Sadler and and Gary black and they certainly have their work cut out for them they're going to have to hit Walker and hit him hard to try and define him in the eyes uh, right now of Republican based base voters who as you mentioned love Herschel Walker as we can see but I mean the poll shows that they also have to be very very careful because you know, uh, Herschel Walker seems to have, you know, not quite the endorsement, but Trump has been saying how, you know, encouraging <coughs> Herschel to run um, and has made clear that he's going to back him. And with 83 percent of the, the Republican-based voters here in Georgia still supporting Donald Trump, uh, that that leaves it, you know, that's a hard job for somebody like Gary Black or Latham Sadler or or Kelvin King. You know, define your opponent, um, but also make sure to not run aground of all those Trump voters.
1: Yeah, by the way, that 83% favorable among Republicans for Donald Trump was also a number that PPP found in its polling. But, J- Julianne, I I would think there's got to be a good news, troubling news story here for Republicans. Um, Walker wildly popular, but so far his candidacy is basically a mirage. He hasn't talked about issues. He hasn't even uh, claimed that he is going to run. And I think the number that— really suggests that there could be some problems for him is that when when they were asked whether they had a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Walker, 31% said they're not sure. And that's where Walker could find himself with a little trouble on his hands, don't you think?
0: Well, I think the fact that this poll. Has been taken um, uh, an entire year, actually a, a little more than a year before the election, um, and it's featuring a candidate that is not even a declared candidate in the race yet, and quite frankly, a candidate whom I believe, if he were in the race, I mean, it would it would be his to lose. Um, but I mean, Herschel, he is loved by the GOP, and and like I said, I think that the fact that this has taken so far out and he's doing so well in the polling without even being a candidate speaks volumes to his, uh, his candidacy. I mean, he is popular with the GOP. He's popular with swing voters, with sports enthusiasts. He's, he's absolutely adored by young male voters. Um, And I think if he runs as long as he sticks to a Georgia focused message and the fact that he would be representing Georgians and issues that are important to Georgians as the only thing that he is beholden to, I have little doubt that he could easily defeat Warnock.
1: Terry, the uh, let me give you one more figure here uh, and then ask you to weigh in as the Democrat on the panel. If the candidates for U.S. Senate were Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker, who would you vote for, PPP asked... Forty-eight percent said Warnock. Forty-six percent said Walker. That's certainly within the margin of error. Terry. Terry, are you muted?
4: Yes, I'm so sorry. Yes, so right now Warnock is he. He is he is ahead a little bit of Walker. He's more ahead of Leffler. You know, her name is always in there. He's even more ahead of Gary Bat. Gary Black. If you look in this poll at the Trump statistics of Trump favorability among Republican voters, you've got 83 percent of the Republicans still think Trump is the bee's knees. So that indicates that they will probably gravitate towards whomever the Trump candidate is. But I really think that if Walker is the candidate. You know, Julianne mentioned he was going to have to you know, run a Georgia-focused campaign. We're talking about someone who has not lived in Georgia for decades. He is, he is a Texan. And so I think that that really adds an element of trickiness to having a Georgia-focused campaign when you are not actually a Georgian. Uh the other thing is that, you know, if it is this very Trumpy campaign and the Trumpiest candidate emerges from the GOP primary, I think they're going to have a very hard time in a general election against Raphael Warnock, because I don't think that the overall numbers in Georgia indicate that kind of devotion or favorability regarding Donald Trump. So I think that I, I do not share a, a rosy outlook for the Republicans, which is fine with me, because I would like for Raphael Warnock to continue to serve.
1: So, um, Mariella, let me bring you in and add another layer of data to our conversation about this poll. Uh, PPP found that um, Kelly Leffler against Raphael Warnock runs just about the same as uh, uh, Herschel Walker against Warnock. Um, very little difference. Uh, so it suggests that Leffler could give Warnock a run for his money at this stage. Um, as would Herschel Walker, but here's the other statistic or data point in the polling: Leffler's negatives are 56 percent and only 21 percent positive. Um, that's uh, an interesting uh, piece of information, given that she's in a statistical dead heat with Warnock in a head-to-head matchup.
3: Yes, and that that's very troubling for. Uh, a future for her, her campaigning, the unservability that she has. But going back to Herschel Walker, I, I agree with Terry. He is not a resident. Uh, he, he needs to start with that. Uh remember that Ossoff uh, had some trouble when he first ran because he was not a resident of the district that he wanted to represent. So uh, I think the Democrats uh, could attack. Herschel Walker on that. And I also think that uh, a matchup between Warnock and and Herschel in a debate will be very interesting to to see. Like, uh, remember Loeffler and and Warnock, he sounded a little bit like very repetitive, saying the same thing on, you know, socialist, 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 like he didn't have anything else to say. Uh, and, and I wonder if Herschel Walker, even though he's a beloved figure, will have a narrative to come back. How uh, Warnock is so eloquent, and it, it would be very interesting to watch.
2: I don't know how much residency, um, would play, you know, would be much of a factor this year. Uh, Mariel is absolutely right. That was the defining issue of the sixth district race back in 2017. Uh, but it really wasn't in Marjorie Taylor Greene's race last year in the 14th. And a lot of the, you know, that's a very deeply conservative district and voters did not care that she had moved in after she decided to, to switch races. So I'm not convinced that it would necessarily be a huge factor for Herschel Walker. Um, what could be a huge factor? There's a lot of, um, skeletons in his closet from the past that have started to come out. Um, He's been very upfront about his struggles with mental health, um, you know, which is a good thing, I think, in terms of political strategy and, and strategists talking to him. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of incidents that you're going to see opponents bring up things like pulling a gun on his wife, um, you know, inflating his business record um, allegedly, um, and I think stuff like that could come out in a primary and continue to haunt him going into a general election. Um, Kelly Leffler would be interesting to watch if she indeed uh, were to get in on this. You know, she has a track record that um, people would be able to pick apart and especially when it comes to base Republican voters. And I'd love to hear what Julianne has to say about this. I mean, I think she angered a lot of voters when she did not object to the electoral Georgia's electoral college vote, uh, back, uh, on January 6th, she initially had indicated she was going to, but then after the, the riots, uh, she backed off of that. And I think a lot of folks were angry about that.
0: Julianne. Yes. Yes. I think that that's true. Um, that what Tamar says is is accurate about uh, a lot of the voters, the Republican core Republican based voters being angry about that. I don't know that that necessarily translates into all Republican voters in the state of Georgia and certainly not swing voters. <laughs> um, but I, I think, I, I don't know what Kelly Loeffler is going to do, but I honestly see her as someone that would be running uh, in the next Senate race and not this Senate race. So I think she is a future candidate. I don't think she's going to run in 2022, although I certainly don't speak uh, for Kelly Loeffler.
1: Julianne, while, while the ball's in your court, let me ask you what, about what PPP found in terms of Gary Black. Um, he's certainly, of the candidates who are announced so far, there are three of them, he's the best known name around the state as agriculture Commissioner, he was a very—he's been a very popular figure, and certainly is known uh, because of his work in that uh, department. Uh, and yet, it's only like fifteen percent of people had a favorable impression. Only fifteen percent—something like sixty plus percent of the people polled didn't even really know who Gary Black is. He's already begun uh, going after Herschel Walker in a kind of a mild mannered criticism. Um, but what does this say to you about? whether or not he can get the kind of momentum going he's going to need if he wants to be the candidate.
0: Well, I, I certainly understand the strategy, although I don't think it's a wise one for him. Um, Gary black has always been known and considered in Republican circles as just genuine, honest, good man. Um, You know, really no controversy there. No skeletons in the closet. Um, He is a good man. And I don't think it's going to fare well for him to start attacking Herschel Walker um, out of the gate like this. And, um, you know, he's just he's going to have to find a way to work on his name ID. But he is, you know, he is a, a much older candidate than than everyone else that we're talking about. And I think that. The younger candidates are, when it comes to the media, they're they're more exciting. They're more exciting to the electorate, and um, you know he he's got his work cut out for him where that's concerned.
1: Uh, I just like to say, Julianne, I don't think there's anything really wrong with being older. Speaking as someone who is really mm. older, <laughs> but I take your point, <laughs> Terry.
4: Yeah, Gary Black's campaign, it's been interesting to watch because he is definitely running a much more traditional kind of campaign. And that is something that we really haven't seen, especially from statewide GOP candidates in the past several election cycles. And yesterday, I got an, I guess it was in the AJC, there was an article that I guess one third of Georgia's sheriffs have announced their endorsement of Gary Black in the Senate primary. And I pulled up. Mm-hmm. What those numbers were like I was like, well, how many of them? You know, how many sheriffs are Democrats? Not that many, but I was, you know, looking to see sort of how did this compare. And David Perdue had 90 sheriffs, so that is a bunch more. That's more than 30, more than I think Gary Blacklist. And I'm wondering, hey, are these Republican sheriffs? What are they waiting for? And are they waiting to kind of see if Herschel Walker? Are they? Wait, like, what are they waiting for? And and I think that I think. A, that announcement about his sheriff endorsements to me, represented what we're seeing with a lot of the GOP right now at this primary. And I think they're, they're almost in this waiting and this holding pattern, which I imagine has to be frustrating if, you, if you're you know, a Republican who wants to get this moving along. But I thought it was interesting because he is, Gary Black is running a very traditional campaign, and I don't know if, as a GOP candidate, you can run a very traditional campaign in Georgia anymore.
1: All right. Before we get off this uh, this subject entirely tomorrow, and then Mariella, please weigh in. I want to point out a story that Mark Nisi dropped on the AJC website just a couple of hours ago. Tomorrow, you made the point that Herschel Walker has a lot of personal baggage based on his mental health. Uh, Issues which he's been very forthright about, but also some concerns about his behavior toward his wife and whatever. Well, Martinisi published this story. I'll read you the first couple of graphs. Potential U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker and his wife live in Texas, but she voted in Georgia's election for president last fall. The absentee ballot cast by Julie Blanchard raises questions about whether she was allowed to vote in Georgia while living in Texas, It's illegal for non-residents to vote in Georgia in most circumstances. Meanwhile, her husband was calling for prosecutions of voter fraud. Now, Nisi gets into the details of this tomorrow uh, and points out, you know, they, they claim to have a dual residence. They have a home in Buckhead. But Georgia law is pretty specific about where your residence really primary legal residence is and where you can vote tomorrow.
2: Yeah, I mean, that would certainly be a headache for him to have to answer for should he enter this race. And remember, he has not. (laughs) He might not even be a candidate. But, you know, it it is a headache. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think it would be fatal. Um, This is reminiscent to me of some of the stuff with Lucy McBath and her husband. And, you know, he has a house in in Tennessee and where people were claiming homestead deductions and that sort of thing. And she was easily reelected. And so um, especially having that Trump endorsement, I think he can get through this. If he so chooses Mariella?
1: to run. Mariella?
3: Well, yes, I, I agree with Tamar that uh, for some voters, uh, those things do not uh, make a difference. Uh, you know, if uh, they see, they, they claim a vote of fraud when it is against their, their interest, but if someone uh, if from their political affiliation does the same, they find justifications, they make... Uh, Ethic gymnastics to justify it. So we have seen this throughout the past two um, presidential elections. And, and I think voters are more attached emotionally to the ideology of their candidates than even to their um, ethical uh, behavior. So um, I agree with Tamar.
1: Um, We should close out this portion of the conversation, the polling portion of the conversation, uh, Julianne, by pointing out that uh, the PPP poll shows that uh, President Biden's approval rating here is just about the same as his disapproval numbers. 46 approve, 48% disapprove. That's basically a wash. Um, But, you know, I wonder... Uh, if if as the coronavirus continues to pick up steam here and across the country, we've already seen a Quinnipiac poll which shows that Biden has lost some favorability in terms of his handling of the virus um, and vaccinations. Um, and I wonder what we should make of uh, that in Georgia. It strikes me that it's relatively insignificant now, but it's worth watching. Yes?
0: No, I think it's a very good point. Um, you know, no matter who the president would be, I think that any sort of explosion of coronavirus cases that did anything to affect our economy, that did anything to affect the housing market, um, I, I think that that would not fare well, no matter who was in office. So I think that it would definitely, uh, definitely affect him. With regard to how he is handling uh, vaccinations, I think the biggest problem has been the messaging, and, you know, the the fact that, well, we can get into this later, I guess, if you want to, but the fact that the, the CDC has, uh, you know, 40 percent of their employees are not vaccinated and the president is calling for, uh, for various companies, not necessarily companies, but calling for vaccinations and, you know, supportive of companies that mandate vaccinations. Yet the CDC, who is in charge of of the messaging on uh, COVID nineteen does not require vaccinations for its employees, so I think that that's you know a, a very much a double standard.
1: Um, Terry, let me give you a chance to respond on Biden, and then I want to do a little bit of a fact check um, on on this notion. Um, it, it has been reported that public health officials are saying that forty to fifty percent of Food and Drug Administration and Center for Disease Control, people are refusing to get uh, vaccinated. Um, uh, USA Today did a fact check on yeah. this. And I think what we'll do is, what, what, why don't we post it? I haven't had a chance to read through the whole thing, but I, I think there are some questions about the data. But Terry, let me, let me go to you on the Biden question. Uh, there are Democrats who really believe that Biden has got to be tougher in pushing vaccinations uh, he seems to be starting in that direction, but but he's been under some uh, uh, criticism from some people in his own party for not being quite strong enough.
4: And I definitely understand that frustration. So I have been down the anti-vaccine and the vaccine hesitancy rabbit hole for several years now, since I started working on vaccine policy in the Georgia legislature back in, in, in 2019. And in Biden's defense, Everything I've read about how you reach vaccine-hesitant people, you really can't come down hard on them. It's, it's very, very hard. It takes a combination of empathy and presenting data and letting people come to their own conclusions. And that's all well and good when we're talking about parents trying to decide whether or not they want to delay the measles vaccine for their kids. But... I think where the frustration comes from is that we are in a crisis right now, right? We are in this fourth wave of COVID that did not have to happen. We are a nation where anybody, you know, within, granted, I live in, you know, in suburban Atlanta, but I can think of four places within a mile or two of my house where I can go and get a vaccine right now. And I think that, you know, vaccines are available throughout the state of Georgia. I know that there are, you know, you do have issues. People are afraid of, of getting sick and missing a couple of days of work. There are valid reasons. Uh, But I but I do think that what Biden is doing, his approach is actually very sensible. I think it is very sensible to say for federal employees we are not going to mandate this, but we've got to keep the government up and running. We've got to keep the government functioning. We've got to keep our employees safe. So you don't have to be vaccinated. But if you're not, you have to be tested. You have to wear a mask. I think that's perfectly reasonable. And I think that to Julianne's point, I think no matter who was in president, people were going to be frustrated with the leadership, and especially with where this is just such a unique situation because the Delta variant is so different. I almost feel like we should call it COVID-21 because it is a very different virus in so many ways from the original COVID-19 that we had all just become accustomed to dealing with.
1: Um, okay, we're going to take a break. Julianne, just to uh, clarify uh, uh, your uh, claim, uh, w- which I understand the, the, the uh, reason you made that, that statement. What USA Today is reporting on that, it, it is true that in May, uh, at Fauci uh, reported in, in, a, in testimony at Congress that, that 40 to 50 percent of employees... Uh, were he said uh, pro- probably up to 60 percent of CDC and FDA employees had received the vaccine, but that they didn't talk about people refusing to get vaccinated. Uh, this was back in May, and CDC says it won't release figures on exactly how many people have been vaccinated uh, because the federal government doesn't require employees to report a vaccination status. So I just wanted to uh, um, uh, mentioned that the, the numbers could be lower, uh, but we're just not quite sure uh, about what they represent. Let's take our first break of the show and be back with more in a minute. Tamar Hallerman, Julianne Thompson, Terry Mary Ella Romero all with me for a uh, political rewind uh, uh, today. Um, So let's move on. Uh, I'd love to talk about immigration uh, for a a few minutes here because there are several stories that really stand out right now that we ought to be talking about. Mariella, I mentioned um, in the introduction to the show that we have now learned that um, Georgia is one of the worst states in the country when it comes to representation for immigrants who face deportation. Um, and and that it is very difficult to find an attorney, an immigration lawyer, if you face deportation. And the the statistics show that without representation, only about 3% of those who face deportation win their cases, whereas if you have representation, a vastly larger percentage uh, win their cases. What does that tell you about the state of Georgia right now?
3: Well, uh, this, is, this might be eye opening for many listeners in, in, in our audience here. Uh, it's not uh, news for uh, our immigrant community here in, in the state of Georgia. Uh, and one of the things is that, unlike criminal uh, defend, defenders, defendants, I'm sorry, immigrants do not have a right to government appointed counsel if they cannot afford private representation. Uh, You know, this is something that we have known for for many years. Another thing is that of the three courts, immigration courts in uh, Georgia, one is on the Stewart Detention Center. And to have attorneys uh, available there is very, very hard, very complicated. Also, another issue is the, the cost uh, of, of representation. Uh, many families before the pandemic, when a uh, loved one was uh, detained, you know, everybody pulled together uh, and, and contributed to, to have an attorney representing their loved one. But the pandemic has also uh, impacted that and, and many families have lost their jobs. They're not making and need, and you know, to add legal costs that is very, very, very hard, and costly. Well, it, it's nearly impossible. So those figures in, in that problem um, is not news to to our community. But it might be eye-opening
1: for, for the larger public. Uh, Tomorrow, according to uh, uh, your colleagues who, who reported this at the AJC, there are something like 40,000-plus pending deportation cases in the state. Only 15,000 of those people have lawyers, which means your odds of being represented are about 39%. And all of this... At the same time, that is at least as of the end of July, uh, Georgia had the fourth largest ICE detainee list of any state in the country. Tamar?
2: yes, eye opening. Just as Mariella said, certainly to to see some of these statistics here, um, Georgia was one of the is one of the top states to to detain um, a lot of undocumented people who come through here. Um, and as Mariella mentioned, there's a you know three. Uh, detention centers, and one of them is in Lumpkin. So, getting lawyers to who are willing to drive down there, you know, more than a hundred miles south of Atlanta, is is hard. And there, there does seem to be some pro bono uh, attorneys who are able to try and fill in some of the gaps. But it seems like even many of them are just constantly overloaded with cases. So, it's certainly a, a heartbreaking situation.
1: Um, Terry, there's an organization, or there's, there's an entity called the Executive Office for Immigration Review. I'm not familiar with it, but uh, apparently they list attorneys who are available to give pro bono services for um, detainees, among the other things that they do. <clears throat> and the AJC found there were only three pro bono lawyers listed in the state of Georgia for people to turn to. Uh, Terry, weigh in, and then Julianne.
4: No, that's exactly right it's, it's, it's a it's a troubling thing And pro bono there, there are never enough pro bono attorneys period full stop in georgia but this particular issue and we know that georgia has a very high population of detainees we know that it sounds like you know there's this 14 percent rate of representation which is astonishing low astonishingly low given the number of of people who who need help and given the barriers I mean representing yourself you know the article has data on those points also. And, and you are highly unlikely to be successful in these immigration courts if you are representing yourself. And so it is a, you know, it's, it's, a, it, it's a really vexing thing because there are not enough pro bono attorneys to go around. There certainly aren't enough who are willing to go to these more remote parts of the state. And I think it's a real problem for these individuals.
0: Well, there's, there's definitely not – right. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. There's yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's definitely not a large selection of attorneys that do pro bono work uh, for immigration here in the state of Georgia. Um, I, I think this is an opportunity for um, a nonprofit organization that would provide that sort of legal representation um, for, for these types of cases, and it makes me think of my – my friend, Charles Cook, who uh, who does a lot mm-hmm. of immigration uh, law, he and I don't always agree on a lot of issues, but he is one of the finest men, um, one of the finest attorneys in the state of Georgia. And it makes me think about all the hard work he does, but I do think it is an opportunity for a nonprofit and it is the type of work that um, that I think that there would be a large donor base for. And, uh, Mariela, so
1: go ahead.
3: Yes, to that point, Julianne, there are uh, organizations that offer pro bono representation. Uh, the Latin American Association has a legal department, um, Agents Advancing Justice, also a refugio right there near the Stewart Detention Center, but uh, there's not enough attorneys, and one other critical point that is, is, is important to mention, and we always talk about this with our with our audience, is that many times people are represented by attorneys that do not have a background in immigration law. and Immigration law is extremely complicated. As Julianne was mentioning, Charles Cook is a great example of a, an excellent attorney, and I know they have done many pro bono cases, he and his partners, but there's, you know, too many people to help all of them and to have access to a specialized attorney mm-hmm. on immigration is, is very costly. And uh, many times uh, people just think that any attorney can do immigration. Many uh, you know, good-hearted attorneys are also trying to help and see, yeah, I, I can help, and then they find themselves that trying to uh, understand the nuances of immigration law is extremely complex.
1: You know, it strikes me um, that whether you are uh, one of those who thinks that people who come into the country illegally should, in fact, be deported, that that's the best outcome for many of them, or whether you really want to find a path for them to be able to stay, we, we all believe in due process, I think. I don't think it necessarily is a Republican or a Democratic issue. At least that's the way it strikes me, Tamar.
2: Yeah, Um, And I think the the issue is this is an area that there's long been such policy gridlock over. So even just figuring out how to clear the backlog of immigration cases, for example, how many more immigration judges do we want to hire? Uh, All of that, you know, there's been such a dearth of legislation coming from Washington because it's, it's been such a hot issue for the last 30 years. So I think that makes it even harder.
1: So, uh, uh, Terry, let me start uh, this with you and then get everybody else into the conversation. Um, President Biden, under a lot of fire from many immigration advocates for the way in which he's been dealing with uh, border uh, issues. Um, And and it it goes to show that whether you're a Republican or a Democratic president, uh, you're going to find yourself mired down with trying to find solutions for an intractable a uh, problem, uh, you know. President Obama was kind of the uh, became uh, was heavily criticized for the number of people who he sent back across the border. President Trump, of course, was uh, demonized by many people for some of his actions, and now President Biden faces similar pushback. Um, one of them is over Title Forty Two which was um, the Trump order, which did call instead of people who came to the states looking for refugee status, instead of being kept, held here, were being sent back immediately. Uh, I think uh, many progressives expected that President Biden would overturn Title 42. He, in fact, has not done that at this point. That's just one of the areas where he is getting real pushback from some of his allies. Terry?
4: Uh, yes, I think that he is getting pushback on this. I don't think the pushback is unreasonable, given that this was Title 42 is one of the more onerous things regarding immigration. That is a legacy of the Trump administration. And I think, again, we're, we're talking about this issue of volume. And I feel like, you know, Biden is he wants to do things deliberately. He wants to do things with that are policy driven. And. I'm, I mean, I'm optimistic and, and convinced that he is committed to overturning this. I think there is just this issue of dealing with the volume of folks who we are dealing with, dealing with this on top of the spike with the Delta variant and the fourth wave of the COVID-19. I think that, you know, obviously there are people who, in the government, in the federal government, whose entire jobs are to figure this kind of thing out. But I, I do think that there is a COVID and a coronavirus impact for why there is a delay in moving forward with overturning
1: Title Forty Two, uh, Julianne? Uh, uh, again, talking about another issue the Biden administration is facing that Trump was heavily criticized for. Here's the lead from a story in this morning's New York Times: The Biden administration is violating the terms of a long-standing court settlement that requires certain protections for migrant children in government custody, lawyer said in a motion filed. Monday, yesterday, in federal court. The filing describes, quote, shockingly deplorable conditions at two emergency shelters set up in Texas this year to help house a record number of children caught crossing the border with Mexico. Um, And the Biden administration had been under court order to find safe, clean uh, places for these children to be housed. Uh, Julianne and then Mariella.
0: Uh, yes, I like. Like people have said, uh, this is a very complex issue uh, when it comes to immigration. But regardless of how you feel, the best path is to deal with this issue. Children should never be in a circumstance where they have unsafe conditions or dirty conditions. I mean, this this should never happen. And so, no matter who the president is, they need to step up to the plate. Biden needs. To, to make sure that this is taken care of. Um, I think that Vice President Harris has been under a lot of fire because of the way that she has handled uh, the border crisis. And, you know, so I, I think that this is just very telling in the fact that this is something that needs to be handled. It's something that needs, that we don't need more kicking the can down the road. We need to handle this
1: issue, but
0: no matter what happens, We can never make excuses for poor living conditions for children or or any human being.
1: Marielle, I want to give you the last word on this before we break. But here's the depressing thing about this. It feels to me like we could be, except for having the name Biden instead of Obama, Biden instead of Trump, Biden instead of Bush, we could be doing these same stories Every year for the past couple of decades and doing them into the future, Mariella, that people are not solving this problem?
3: Absolutely. You are correct, Bill. Mm-hmm. Immigration is the problem that nobody wants to solve. Nobody has the political will to solve. Everybody makes promises during their campaigns that they're going to do it, that it's easy. But when it comes to really implementing it and nobody has the will to do it because this is a very complex issue there are solutions there are brilliant attorneys who have an economist even who have made the case why we need immigration reform it's going to be good for the country but the political will is not there because sometimes immigration <clears throat> i think not sometimes most of the time immigration is toxic but one clarification i wanted to make bill is that Title 42 is not something that the Trump administration created. It is a statute on immigration, uh, on, our, on our current laws, that provides the U.S. government with the sole discretion to expel or expedite the deportation of a foreign national in U.S. territory. What the Trump administration did is that they took a 1944 um, health, public health statute uh, to indefinitely uh, put oh. Title 42 in place because of COVID. And what the advocates are saying is that there are ways to do this, science based uh, solutions to not deport people under 42 and still prevent the, the spread of uh, COVID 19.
1: Ah, so thank you for uh, clarifying it. It had already been on the books, it's just the Trump administration. Uh, used it, uh, activated it, because it, with the uh, their rationale being uh, people were coming into the country with COVID-19. Got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in a minute. Tomorrow Hallerman, we know that the U.S. Census Bureau is going to release a big batch of data to all the states uh, this by the end of this week, which will allow uh, states to begin uh, planning their uh, special sessions, in, in Georgia at least, to uh, redraw political maps. Uh, David Ralston continues to say he doesn't think we're going to see a session until much later in the year. He tell- on our show, he said, won't see it till the first frost is on the pumpkin. But here's what's interesting, of course. Governor Kemp is uh, eager to push the special – the session – to look at, and he's the one who calls the session and determines the agenda. He wants them to do something about crime in metro Atlanta, which is going to be a big, big issue in his reelection campaign. Um, and yet our GPB News' Riley Bunch talked to both uh, David Ralston and Jeff Duncan for a story that's up on our website right now, and both of them say, we're going to be so busy with redrawing these maps, we don't know if we're going to get around to the governor's crime agenda. tomorrow.
2: Yeah, especially David Ralston is saying that that's something that might have to slip till the regular session in uh, in January. And certainly they have their work cut out for them, redrawing the the legislative uh, lines. And I think everyone's on the edge of their seats, especially about what's going to happen in a lot of these very competitive suburban uh, congressional districts north of Atlanta. Um but yeah, I mean, certainly Brian Kemp is going to be pushing for, for something having to do with crime. Um, this has become a really great way for him to rev up his base, um, you know, using the city of Atlanta and Keisha Lance Bottoms as a foil. It's a way for him to, to talk tough on crime. It's a way for him to get away from the issue of the 2020 election, um, an issue that really um, angers a, a lot of the Republican base. And so this is an easy way for him to, to circle the wagon. So it's, it's not surprising that he would want to focus on their issue. There does seem to be an interesting bit of, um, you know, different ideas swirling around the Republican Party in terms of what they want to do uh, to tackle crime. And I know Riley addresses this in her um, in her story.
1: Yeah. And we we will certainly have time to talk about that as we move closer to the session. But in the meantime, Terry, you're going to be sitting in uh, your seat in the House when the special special session begins. And you very well might be asked if Governor Kemp has his way to look at legislation that would give the state more authority in uh, policing uh, the city of Atlanta and other measures that Kemp is going to want to propose?
4: We will probably be asked to consider those things, but I think to echo Speaker Ralston and the Lieutenant Governor, the aspect of the time crunch for getting redistricting done is a very legitimate Point. I mean, we are the census data, we're going to get it a little bit earlier than we thought we were, but that doesn't mean that it's not very delayed from when we usually receive this mm-hmm. census data. So the time crunch is a real thing. And I will say, you know, to echo Tamara's point. People talking about wanting to add things to the agenda in the special session is not unusual at all. You know, these conversations happened prior to the 2018 special session when we were, when the topic was dis- discussing Hurricane Michael relief. That special session, by the way, also happened in November. And I know at that point I had to send my family on ahead of me down to our annual Thanksgiving gathering down in New Orleans. I think that that is a that's a real concern also for people who, you know, we we know we're going to have a lot on our agenda at the General Assembly. And we know that crime, whether it is in Atlanta or in Albany or wherever it is in the state, that merits some substantive, substantive discussion and policy discussions and policy debates on how we as the General Assembly deal with that issue. And I think, frankly, we would be doing a disservice to the issue of how we best address crime in Georgia if we try to crunch that in when we're have when we going to have very time-consuming conversations about redistricting and also very tense conversations about redistricting. I mean, do you want to – is it the best time to bring up a statewide issue like crime when tensions are already running extremely high? And I don't think it is.
1: Um, Julianne, one of the reasons, of course, that the governor can really hit hard on crime in Atlanta, particularly – is there something of a vacuum in terms of dealing with crime in Atlanta? Now that Keisha Lance Bottoms isn't for running for re-election, uh, it, it isn't uh, something that she has been as verbal and outspoken uh, on as she might have been if she were running for re-election. There are people who feel that she has not quite grasped the urgency, at least in the way she talks about it publicly, and Kemp is criticizing her for that over and over again.
0: Well, yes, and you have, um, you have Buckhead you know, trying to become its own city and everything uh, surrounding the situations going on with public safety in that community uh, driving that particular issue. But this is not just red meat for the base of the Republican Party. I just wanted to make sure that I clarified that, that this is not just about the base of the Republican Party. People all around the state of Georgia want to feel safe, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, people want to feel safe, and I do think that this is a very important issue to everyone. Um, that being said, whether or not this is something that's going to be dealt with this uh, special session or not, I, I really don't know, but I would think at least the
3: discussions would begin. Yes, I I believe that uh, crime is a a big issue. And like Julianne said, it's not only uh, something that's going to matter to Republicans. Look at the recent murder in Piedmont Park, how that has galvanized uh, a very diverse community that typically votes Democrat. And they are very active in, in, in trying to, you know, take measures and demand uh, answers from the, uh, from the authorities in, in, to get a better handle on crime. Uh, also in, in our community, we, ha- we have been recording more cases of, uh, violent cases in, in our own community. So this is a, an issue that, uh, is, is important to every
1: voter. Um, Tamar, I'm a terrible time manager. I wanted to get a chance to talk about your Olympics story, and we have run out of time. Suffice it to say, it's online, right? People can read it. We'll post a link to it. And it's easy enough to say there are many good and some not so good things that you found we're still living with as a result of the Olympics. Yes?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It helped, um, you know, it it helped jolt the economy of, of Atlanta and of Georgia. People think it really helped open the doors to a lot of foreign investment, um, revamp a ton of neighborhoods like downtown. But there's still plenty of folks, especially who lived in the shadow of Olympic Stadium, who feel like the, the government, uh, the city and Olympic officials could have done a lot more.
1: Well, I wish I really apologized to you. I wanted to spend more and to listeners, uh, but the story is available. And uh, Sam will post uh, a link on our social media for that. So we are out of time. Julianne Thompson, Mariela Romero, Terry Anolowitz, Tamar Hellerman. Thank you for a, a really smart conversation today. We're going to be back, of course, again tomorrow uh, with a lot more to talk about. We never run out of subjects anymore on Political Rewind and certainly won't. Tomorrow. Until then, I'm Bill Nyga. Take care. Stay healthy. Please wear your mask when you're indoors. There's too much spread of the Delta variant to ignore that, even if you're vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, maybe this is a time to think about doing it. Take care, everybody.